Good evening, everyone. Thanks for joining us on Vintage McCoy. I've been gone for a while, and Pastor Rick's been filling in. Uh, and, and tonight, I'm going to fill you in on where I've been, but I also want to cover a very special person tonight. I was deeply touched this week by their life. Uh, they went to be with the Lord, and they left an enormous impact on not only my life, but a very dear friend of mine and the country itself. And in addition, uh, we're going old school tonight. I'm bringing back uh, my, my co-pilot for many, many episodes, uh, David Glinky. He's going to be joining me tonight, and you're in for quite a treat. Listen, you need to tune in. This will forever change your life. Buckle up. Here we go. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light. of human liberty can only strengthen the cause of world peace. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. But because of the Watergate matter, I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. One small step for man. to be able to sing with new meaning my country tears of me. Sweet land of liberty of the Arsene. We shall pay any price, bear any dirt, uphold any foe to ensure the survival and the success of liberty. It is indeed we are the defenders of freedom. With the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph. So help us God. We hold these truths be self-evident that all men are created one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Those who forget the past are destined to And now, your host, Pastor Rob McCoy. Good evening, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Uh, to my right is David Glinky, who you were with me uh, on the like the very first episodes. I mean, it started with Micah, and it was one camera with a black backdrop, and I always say it looks like an ISIS beheading video, <laughs> grainy fo footage. We started with 22 subscribers. Now we're at like 30,000. I don't Something know where we are. Like, yeah. But we did it to, to reach out to the folks in our congregation who were shut in because we didn't know the severity of the virus, and we wanted to quell their fears. We started putting doctors online, psychologists, and all of a sudden it takes on a national bend in some capacity. We've had a number of episodes that have had tens of thousands of views, if not more, because I know they go viral. But you were there from day one, and we were doing this for a long time together, and you've, you've got two full-time jobs. You're yeah. a financial planner and a pilot for a major airline. Yeah. I think that... Uh it was such a great learning experience for all of us, yeah. for the church, for you, for me, picking people's brains and going, my brain was just getting full. Yeah. It's just incredible. Well, and, and I also realized how ugly we look on camera. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I'm thankful now we don't have that camera looking at us so we can't we yeah, see ourselves yeah, the whole time. Yeah, you can't see how bad we look. <laughs> yeah. But, but to see kind of it's taken on a life of its own and, and, you know, we got a studio and we're doing more and Rick's filling in. But as a result of some of these things going so viral and the connections with Turning Point USA and Charlie Kirk, and then, of course, 
we, I did a recent video with Dennis Prager on his fireside chat, and then we've got some amazing guests that have come in that we had them before they were kind of big, right? setting a, especially a number of doctors that clarified the issues and, and quelled the fear of folks across the country. And we're watching the stuff early on we were doing where they were saying that you're you know outside the boundaries, and a couple of times, I think once in particular, we got censored by YouTube. But now we're watching is all the stuff we've been talking about is legit. True. Yeah. 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 Well, and the thing is that you're doing all this stuff with Charlie. I'm trying to help volunteer in other areas. And you're trying to figure out where can you plug in. That's the neat thing about what's going on at the church. There's so many different ways to plug in. So I kind of encourage a, you to that, do it. That's a good segue because yeah. uh, I've been gone. Uh, and, and the folks know that um, I... I was gone for vacation. There was a, a window of opportunity. A friend of mine called and said, hey, come celebrate my birthday. And I said, sure. And I looked at the calendar. It was open. Michelle and I went. And that was a, that's been like two and a half weeks of intensity. And I'll, I'll fill everyone in on yeah. that because it culminates with what we're talking about tonight. Mm -hmm. but, but in my absence, Pastor Rick has just been doing a great job with the live streams. But... The church itself has taken on a life of its own because prior to the lockdown, the church had about 350 people in it on a good Sunday. And now we baptized in six months more people than the attendance <laughs> of the church yeah. was. Yeah. And we've grown, what, 400%. But the exciting thing is uh, folks are awakening to their responsibility to, to save the republic. And they, they see their role scripturally in contending in the ecclesia, the public square, and there's, there's this lady in the church that we were introduced to early on when we started the live stream. She was moved by it. She started attending with her husband and her boys, uh, Scarlett Lonnie. Uh -huh. And <clears throat> she was trying to put on um, with Rick Green and Wall Builders an event at the church she was attending. And there didn't seem to be any response in her church. And she came here and found fertile ground. And we put forward... Um, this, well, we're, we're putting on an event that she's doing every Thursday night, mm -hmm. and it, it's called Biblical Citizenship. Biblical Citizenship, and and she's yay big. I mean, what is she five foot? <laughs> I, I call her Sea Biscuit. She she's tiny, on. but she's mighty. <laughs> and and Scarlett puts this on. We open up registrations. Our sanctuary holds really when you pack it in like four four twenty. Mm -hmm. We don't want to violate fire codes, and. This is, what, now the third or fourth week? T tonight is the second week. Second week. Yeah, and uh, she had it packed out at 420. So, so, so and there's yeah. a waiting list. Yeah, yeah. So you could come, but be, you might get turned away. So. But Scarlett puts this on. It's all voluntary. She, she is emphatic about this. And, you know, she's raising her boys. She's got work to do. Her husband works full time. I mean, there's, that family's busy. And she realizes that she's fighting for her, 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 her son's future and, and grandchildren's future. And she puts this on, not knowing what kind of response we'd have. And the church is completely packed with a waiting list every Thursday night. Yeah. These are busy people that want to understand yeah. how to save the republic. Well, I think the other thing that's really interesting is that since we started live stream God, a year ago or longer, you, is you had Rick Green, David Barton, all these uh, Kirk Cameron yeah. all come in, and not only as a result of all those people coming, 
and then you guys letting them come into the church to record. So when you watch these episodes tonight, there are recordings of them, even though they're being played across the country, not just at our church, but down yeah. in San Diego, the recording was done at Godspeed. Yeah, they take on a viral nature yeah. and people are blessed by them. So the videos tonight are the ones that you recorded, Kirk Cameron recorded, yeah. Dave Barton recorded. And so that is what's happened as a result of what you've done is all these people have come together and I think the goal of what we're seeing in biblical citizenship is to equip people with knowledge because with knowledge we alleviate fear and the wisdom is going to give us the... And, and when you fear God, you fear nothing else and yep. the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yep, yep. We talked about that last, uh, last time. And, and So as a result, you're going to have people being equipped and you're going to create soldiers to go out there and alleviate the fear amongst other people too. And, and to contend for the finest form of government on the face of the earth yeah. that's being, it's, it's under attack by socialism and communism, whether it's uh, you know, critical race theory, which we cover on this program. We're going to have James Lindsay come out. We've, all, mm. we've secured the date. James Lindsay. Oh, my gosh. You're going to have yeah. a pastor and an atheist on a Sunday morning. Oh, my gosh. That's and that, That's going to be remarkable. And he wrote Cynical Theory, and he's mm. done more work on behalf of, of exposing the deception and the misery of critical race theory than, well, Vody Bachman's done a great job. But, mm -hmm. but Vody, to, his, to James's credit, Vody cites James's work. Mm -hmm. And was deeply influenced by James's work. And and James, though he's a self-professing atheist, I think he's more of an agnostic. He believes that there's absolute truth and it's discoverable, no, knowable truth. So that screams of a designer. But that's for another day, and I'll yeah. we'll have some yeah. fun together. But I, I adore this man. Right. And he was open to coming. And you know, you got an atheist who's going to be standing in front of a, a congregation on a Sunday, and there's there's Christians out there going, "Why are you bringing an atheist in the? Give it a rest." Mm. I mean, you learn. know, yeah, learn a little bit. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean. Yeah. When you go to a doctor and you've got a, a, a Christian doctor and you've got an atheist doctor and one has done 400 transplants and was, is renowned in the medical community as the finest doctor and this guy's done two, uh, what are you going to do? Yeah. You're going to pick the guy who's got the most experience and understands and, and maybe his worldview and the things of he doesn't know the Lord and, and agnosis, agnostic means without knowledge, hey, don't you want him to come and see a group of people and get a chance to see how we're with you and... Uh, well, and what's the best way to be able to debate or learn is to learn the other side yeah. to its finest so that you have the ability to, to learn from them, to be able to, to use that knowledge when you're going to talk to somebody else about the same subject. Exactly. So, so. we got James, James Lindsay coming out. We're going to announce that uh, in a couple days. We're going to announce the date. We've secured it, but I, I want to make sure everything's in order because yeah. it's going to pack the place out. Right. Um, and then Will Witt was on the program. Mm -hmm. And I mean, this, we, yeah. it's neat to see what God's doing with this thing we started hundreds of episodes ago to minister to folks that were shut in, wondering if anyone would even watch. And, and now God's given us some amazing blessings with folks coming in. And, and you and I were trying to connect because we just, you know, haven't yeah. had the chance. And you were in the studio and said, hey, let's go yeah. old school and come back yeah. and spend yeah. some time together. Yeah. I, you know, I was going to say that one of the things is now as we're starting to open up and stay opened up, there is so many opportunities. We think of uh, Biblical Citizenship, Brave, yeah. the business owners that are locally, they meet. You got uh, me connected with Brave. Yeah. You, you had me come out for that event. Yeah. Tell oh, everybody my. about Brave, Just so, yeah, but talk yeah, to me about it. But the Brave is all the business owners that stood up, like Pizza Cookery and Matt from uh, Mrs. Olson's. For, Kitchen, it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, for example, and they meet uh, once BSF a month. BSF Fitness. Yeah, BSF. And they meet once a month. Oh my gosh, these guys, 
I, I still think one of the best introductions was Matt from Mrs. Olson's introducing you, talking about his faith that he's come by opening his business, by encouragement from you, and then coming to church for the first time. Yeah. So people are finding God not just through church, they're finding it through our constitutional uh, documents and founding fathers, they're finding it through their businesses. So there's so many different ways to get plugged in. So don't think that you just need to come to church. There, you, there's all these opportunities to learn and you'll find God through all those opportunities. I, 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 we didn't prep this, we're sitting down yeah. cold turkey. Yeah. You uh. couldn't have given a better segue into what I wanted to cover tonight. Because in the events that I've been um, participating in in the last two and a half weeks, and, and candidly, folks said, oh, he's on vacation. It was exhausting. I mean, you know, there's a lot of work to do. And I didn't stop working. I just did it in a different environment. But I did mm -hmm. have a great time. And great to spend time with friends. But when we came back, and we went from Dallas and landed, uh, came in and uh, hit the ground running. Um, and, and, it, and it was it was intense. So uh, when we when we landed, it was Thursday night. This is last Thursday night. Yeah, yeah. last Thursday. Mm -hmm. So we land in LAX, come home. We're looking forward to relaxing and then doing Sunday services, getting some rest. Mm -hmm. And uh, I get a text from one of the folks at Turning Point USA. And in the text is a, a Word document, which I think is kind of strange. Why are you connecting a Word document? Mm -hmm. And I open it up, and it's, it's the schedule of events for the Saturday night that they're doing in Phoenix for Turning Point's ninth anniversary and Charlie and Erica Kirk. Uh, Charlie and Erica Kirk they just got married. Right. And, and that Saturday would be the, the one-month anniversary of their marriage. Mm -hmm. And I had already officiated their wedding, so I wasn't going to go to that celebration mm -hmm. thing. I, I was going to rest and get ready for Sunday services. But I open up this Word document and realize I'm scheduled to speak yeah. in this thing. How I didn't get informed, that's another story. <laughs> I'm not the sharpest knife in the drawer. But I'm realizing, I, and, and I, I text the person, I go, is this a suit and tie thing? or is it? And they said, it's, it's black tie formal. I'm like, I was scared you'd say that. You know, my suit is in a pile. Yeah. I haven't done any laundry in three weeks because I left in a whirlwind. Bless my daughter's heart and my son-in-law. They, they, you know, they press my suit. I, I have it ready. And Michelle and I throw some things in a bag and head to Phoenix. And uh, we get there Friday night. And both of us are... I, exhausted. I, we're exhausted. Yeah. And we get there Friday night. And uh, lots to do. My son's got some things. And he's working there at Turning Point. So we... We're up late Friday night, and I'm thinking, it's okay. I'll get some rest for the event Saturday night. So I'm going into midnight, about 1230, and all of a sudden I get a text from Charlie. And Charlie says, are you going to Foster Freeze's memorial service tomorrow's funeral? And I knew that Foster had gone to be with the Lord. I knew he passed, but I, I didn't know that there was a memorial service in Scottsdale because I, I know he's up in... Uh, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, mm -hmm. and I figured that's where they do the service. And I texted him back and I said, uh, uh, what time is it? And you know, now we're approaching 1 o'clock yeah. in the morning. He goes, it's at 10 tomorrow. I'm like, all right. <laughs> so and, much for sleeping in. Yeah, well, Michelle, Michelle wisely has already gone to yeah. bed. I was kind of using yeah. the time to catch up on texts yeah. and everything and emails. And then Charlie says, you know, uh, I, I never write out my message, but I wrote this one out you want to take a look at it, and he sends it over to me, and I read it, and it was touching. I mean, it was one of the, one of the most profound eulogies. I, I, no, 
It was the most profound eulogy I've ever heard. And I've been to hundreds of funerals and memorial services. It, it was spectacular. And, and I'll explain why momentarily. But when I got to the end, it seemed kind of, it, it wasn't Charlie's typical close. Mm -hmm. It's almost like he just ended abruptly. And I, I texted him back. I said, I'm praying for you. Is there anything you need? And he goes, I just don't know how to close this thing. So I sent him some thoughts and texted him over. And I said, take what you want. Don't take any at all. I'll be praying for you. And I left it at that. And, and I really felt inspired by the things I'd sent over. I kind of was stepping into Charlie's shoes, looking at his mentor. And I'll explain how significant Foster mm -hmm. was in Charlie's life. And just trying to say goodbye. So I send that over. It's now 2 o'clock in the morning. I get to bed, wake up, get over the service, and, um, and, and they have a seat for me in the front. So I'm, I'm front row, well, second row, next to the family. And a lot of folks don't know, Foster has a son who's completely deaf, who married a woman who's completely deaf. The children were there in the row in front of me, and I'm watching this amazing interaction with children who can hear but are signing with their parents and then Jeez. talking to each other. Fascinating. And the service was remarkable. I, I, I love the service. And uh, the people who spoke, I mean, Governor Ducey was there. And mm -hmm. he, he presented a flag to Lynn, uh, Foster's widow. And I didn't know a lot about Foster. And I, I want to set the stage for you before I, I, I share with the folks mm -hmm. what, what I had a, a second row seat to observe. They'll get a chance to see it. I met Foster Freeze, didn't know who he was. And as you may or may not know the story, serendipitously, how Charlie and, and I, our lives connected and how I became his pastor, it's for another night. Mm -hmm. Some folks already know it. But in that early part of us connecting, Charlie says, why don't you come on out to our gala um, in, in Mar-a-Lago? Mm -hmm. And I'm like, sure. <clears throat> and, and with Charlie, it's, he tells you that day and then you kind of have to go. It's, I call it the Charlie Kirk crazy train. <laughs> so... I hop on a plane, I head out, I get a blazer, a tie, some slacks, thinking business attire, not realizing it's a black tie event. I should have known what the word gala on it, or gala. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I get there, and, you know, I'd had a busy schedule. Everything's tired with Charlie. And, and I'm, I'm 56, he's 27. It's just not fair. Yeah. It, it, it's just not fair. <laughs> so I'm in the lobby, and Charlie pulls up and he says, hey, listen, I've got five donor dinners I've got to uh, go to tonight. And this was like Friday night. The gala was the next night. He says, i got five donor dinners i got to go to. I want you to go with me to the first one. It's the most critical. Uh, it's Foster Freeze. He was our very first donor to Turning Point. Mm -hmm. And he tells me the story. He said, I was 18 years old. You know what? I'm not going to tell you the story. You'll hear it in the eulogy. He said, Rob, uh, this man has been our, our largest donor and I, and last year he donated a million dollars and he challenged everybody and I want you to sit at his table and represent me. I'll say a few words but then I'm going to have you in my stead. I said, all right. So I get there and I just got off the plane. I didn't have time to change. I'm, I'm literally looking like I'm looking now and they're mm -hmm. at a dinner at a nice restaurant. So what? I, that's how it is with Charlie. I get there and I'm seated next to Erica, who at the time wasn't his fiance, but you know they're they're dating mm -hmm. and they're getting ready to he's getting ready to pop the question. And I'm going to make sure she's okay. And to my left is a, a widow, and she's a little bit older. Uh, and and it's a round <laughs> table, yeah. and you're going to hear the significance yeah. of the round table momentarily. But we're at a round table, and Foster begins, and he lays out the ground rules. And you'll hear in the video that when Foster 
had a meal, he always insisted on a round table. And he was kind of, you know, it's not fair, but I'm going to use the word tyrant because that's how it came across to me. He's, mm. he's going to control the table. He's in charge. And he says only one person's allowed to speak at a time and there's no sidebars. When someone's speaking, everyone's listening until the next person speaks. No sidebars. Fair enough. And he says, if you do a sidebar, I'll throw a roll at you. I'm thinking, who is this guy? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a little like taken aback by it, but I'm there representing Charlie, so just deal with it. A servant speaks when he's spoken to, offers his opinion when mm -hmm. he's asked. I'm there to serve Charlie. I'm not going to make a mess of it. And I'll play the, by the game. So they begin. Well, I've been seated next to a woman who can't hear very well. Yeah, you're so she's, set up. <laughs> yeah, so she's asking me, what are they saying? I can't hear them. And, and I don't want to have a roll thrown at me, so I'm trying to like slyly put my hand up and tell her, and she's saying, what? Yeah. And it's a distraction to the table, and Foster throws a roll at me. And I'm like, and he goes, no sidebars. And I said, uh, Foster, she can't hear. And he says, well, then tell the person to speak up. No sidebars. Yeah. I said, yes, sir. So that was my introduction to Foster Freeze. Jeez. The next night at the gala, Foster and Lynn commit $5 million right there on the spot. Charlie looks at me and says, what'd you do? How'd you get him to give $5 million? I said, hey, I took a roll for you, man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was my night. Yeah. But that was my introduction to Foster Freeze. Yeah. I come to realize that I was in the presence of a very great man and uh, one of Charlie Kirk's mentors. Yeah. And sitting in the second row, not realizing that I was to be at a memorial service, not realizing I'm supposed to speak that Saturday night, tired as can be, God has other plans, and he wanted me to learn something about a very amazing man. And so with that, I want to share with everybody my second row seat of the finest eulogy I have ever heard at a memorial service. And I don't know if YouTube's going to take us off uh, it's a, it, we have permission from Turning Point to show this. Sure. Um, but this is Charlie Kirk giving a eulogy of Foster Freeze, the very first donor to Turning Point and the largest donor to Turning Point. And so you get a chance to check yeah. it out, and so does yeah, everyone else. Amazing. Folks, watch this. It will blow you away. And then I'm going to comment on what God shared with me and how he spoke to me uh, through the life of a man I knew very little about because the night culminated with the event uh, at Turning Point. It ended late, and I had to get back for Sunday services, and there's no flights leaving Phoenix uh, after 8, so I had to drive six hours. I got in at uh, 4 in the morning, preached three services, and then had to go back to Phoenix. God spoke to me the six hours driving alone in that car in this desert by this man's life, Foster Freeze, and through the eyes of a, tw well, first of all, an 18-year-old, who first met him, and then a 27-year-old who is now eulogizing him and how much his life had been touched and what this man's life means to what we need right now in America. Take a look at Charlie Kirk saying goodbye. Uh, oh, last part. Charlie Kirk saying goodbye to Foster. At the end, we all met uh, for the reception. A guy named Barry McGuire, McGuire Wax, yeah. uh, comes up to me real bubbly. He goes, that was amazing. I go, it was. I said, Charlie didn't know how to close it last night. I gave him some words. And that's strange to me because Charlie is an amazing speaker. And, he, yeah. and when he closes things, he lands the plane. Yeah. I, I was, and I said, Barry, I was baffled why he couldn't close it. And, and Barry 
with his octogenarian wisdom, looks at me and he says, Rob, he said, Charlie didn't want to say goodbye. Yeah. And that hit me. Yeah. And um, he did, though, that day. Yeah. And yeah. here it is, folks. Uh, Charlie Kirk's eulogy to the great Foster Freeze. Watch. Good morning. One month ago today, I stood at this altar in this church and married my wife, Erica. Nine years ago today, on June 5th of 2012, to the very day was the official start of Turning Point USA. And now today I have to say goodbye to a dear friend, an American patriot. This has not been an easy week. I remember walking through the Tampa Convention Center at the Republican National Convention in 2012. I was in search of hope and a reason to keep going. Bill Montgomery, who we also lost this year, and I walked through the hallway and then the stairwell trying to find someone to believe in our vision until I saw a familiar face in a stairwell with a cowboy hat. I recognized him from the news, and of course, it was Foster Freeze. I immediately came up to him and introduced myself. I was 18 at the time. I was just a kid from Chicago with really no donors, no presence. I was just a kid from Chicago with a dream and energy to try and change the world. Foster warmly greeted me and told me the way to remember his name was that you have a Foster's beer and a pile of fries and you add an S to it. For those of you that know Foster, you know that introduction makes perfect sense. We got to talking and instead of brushing me off like every other person did that day, he asked me about my vision, my dreams, and we kept talking. He told me his current portfolio of jokes, his favorite Bible verses, and asked me what I wanted to do with my life. Now, I think I remember the joke, and it went something like this. An out-of-towner drove his car into a ditch in a desolate area. Luckily, a farmer came to help him with a big, strong horse named Homer. He hitched Homer up to the car and yelled, pull, Nellie, pull. Homer did not move. Then the, then the farmer said, pull, Buster, pull. Homer again did not respond. Once more, the farmer commanded, pull, Coco, pull. Homer never moved a muscle at all. Then the farmer nonchalantly said, pull, Homer, pull. And the horse eagerly, easily dragged the car out of the ditch. The motorist was so appreciative and very curious, and he asked the farmer, why do you have to call him the wrong name three times? The farmer said, oh, Homer is blind, and if he thought he was the only one pulling, he wouldn't even try. <laughs> now, for those of us that know Foster, he never had to look at notes. He said that so crisply and precisely with every synonym memorized. I heard him tell that joke over 200 times, and it still gets me to laugh. I then went on to clumsily tell him the vision of Turning Point USA and how I believed young people needed to hear the conservative message. We exchanged business cards and Foster told me we would be in touch and he wanted to support what we were doing. A few weeks later, he sent Turning Point USA $10,000. It was our first investment and the resources that got us started. From there, Foster remained more than just a donor or supporter, but a steady and charming influence on my life. He was always actively encouraging all of us to be a better person, to act with civility, be the happiest person in the room, and try and seek peace 
with my enemies. Foster was, of course, remarkably generous to our vision. And without Foster Freeze and his continual generosity, our organization and movement would not exist today. Many of you know the incredible story of his 70th birthday party. Most people ask for gifts on their birthday, not Foster and Lynn. He asked his closest friends, hundreds of them, to come to a party and write down their favorite charity, saying that they would select a couple of them at the end of the evening and donate to them. To the surprise of everyone in the room, Foster and Lynn got up and said, we will give $70,000 to all of them. Lynn and Foster did not do this to get a library named after them or an institute in their honor. Foster loved people. He paid as much respect to the taxi cab driver as he did a senator. To him, all people were equal, just as they were in the eyes of God. His story, his story was uniquely American. And one of his many passions was to make sure this country remained free for my generation and for generations to come. He was truly a Horatio Alger story. Coming from nearly nothing, creating remarkable amounts of value and giving it away as generously as possible. Only in America is a story like Foster's possible. Foster did not count success in terms of material wealth. To quote him, this is not my money, it is God's money. If it was my money, you wouldn't get one red cent. Foster was the wealthiest man I have ever met, but not materially, but in the things that are transcendent and that are eternal. He was rich in friendships. He valued connection with people of all walks of life. He wanted to hear your story, your struggles, and how he could possibly help you. This is best demonstrated in the trips he would host multiple times a year at Langara Lodge and Paul Nelson's farm in South Dakota. For days on end, Foster would host his closest friends from all walks of life to a five-star experience of hunting and fishing. That was always very fun and memorable. But what Foster enjoyed most was the meals, where, of course, only one person was allowed to speak at a time. Foster lit up with delight when a friend of his would share a new success story or project they were working on. While most people have a material net worth similar to Foster, are interested in expanding their assets and spending their money on monetary pleasure or earthly satisfaction, Foster, unlike so many leaders today, tried his best to give away everything he earned, giving away over $500 million to charity. To put that in perspective, that is more than the GDP of seven Polynesian nations. Foster is the only man I ever met who got wealthier the more money he gave away. He was rich in joy. He was the most gleeful person when he entered a room. As I mentioned before, he loved to tell jokes to make a person's day a little bit better. I could repeat even more of those jokes, including his favorite routine of the last years called the jokes around the world, but I would butcher it. Foster was rich with his family relationships and especially his love for Lynn, or he called Linner. Lynn, we know that you were the force behind the force who kept this superhero of a man going. He was a loving father and grandfather. Nothing except his relationship with God was more important than the time he spent with his children and grandchildren. And more importantly, Foster was rich in his relationship with the Lord. There was not a day that went by without Foster quoting one of his favorite Bible verses, as we heard earlier, Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Foster would repeat every single day I was with him that Jesus Christ was the chairman of the board of his life. If there's just one thing we remember from Foster today, it should be that. And all of us that knew Foster knew that he was very precise 
and how he lived his life. For example, he had a disgust for abbreviations and acronyms without explaining what they meant. He had a commitment to only one person talking at dinner. He gave advice time and time again that you must always face sitting the window in a meeting because it highlights your face better and it's easier for others to see you without squinting. He had a description of a complete day, which was a rep, included relationship time, exercise, and productivity. He insisted that everyone gets a driver because, quote, driving takes too much time of your day that otherwise would be used working. He encouraged me to develop a note card system that would prioritize everything based on color of urgency. Blue means it can wait for later. Yellow means it must be done now. Red means he better call Lynn and ask how he can help. As I prepared for these remarks and I thought about how precise Foster lived his life, I asked the question, why? And it all made sense for the first time since I knew Foster. Why was Foster so adamant about people not using unexplained abbreviations? Why was Foster insistent only one person talked at dinner at a time? Why did Foster tell so many jokes? Why did Foster insist that you're in a meeting, you sit facing the window? And the answer is so clear. He cared about people so much that he wouldn't want anyone ever confused, uncomfortable, or unhappy, or distracted. He never wanted anyone in the presence that he could control to feel alienated, uncertain, or worse than before they met him. His philanthropy was in everything that he did. That was his focus minute by minute, serving others. The last time I spoke to Foster was one month ago today, on our wedding day. Foster was worn down from the treatments, but was whimsical and positive as ever. After we talked about hospital price transparency and the need to hold the hospital lobby accountable, Foster told us how much we meant to him and how he wanted us to continue to spread grace, truth, and love to the world. The last thing I remember him saying to us via FaceTime was this, keep fighting, never give up, be civil, and enjoy the ride. Foster's life mission was reflected in everything he did, to the little idiosyncrasies, to the major gifts of philanthropy. It was all about serving others and lifting others up. Foster will be remembered as one of the greatest Americans ever to live. He'll be mentioned alongside the legends of Eisenhower, Reagan, Lincoln, MacArthur, Hamilton, and Rockefeller. A titan of industry, a magnanimous political force, a phenomenal patriot, and a source of joy to every person he came in contact with. Foster brought light to every corner he traveled. There was not one room that wasn't a little bit brighter after he left. Ralph Waldo Emerson famously said, quote, to know even one life has breathed easier because you have lived. This is to have succeeded. Over his lifetime, Foster did that to millions of people, a life truly well lived. To Foster, who I know is watching from heaven right now, likely with a Foster's beer and telling all the angels his jokes, I want to say thank you. Thank you for being a rock for all of us. Thank you for not giving up on our country. Thank you for believing in me. Thank you for being a source of joy in my life and demonstrating to me what it meant to live as Christ commanded us. Thank you for showing what it looks like to be a good husband, leader, and father. Finally, for all of us, we now have work to do. The earth and our country has suffered a tremendous loss. It's now up to us to fill that void. We have to love harder, give more, work extra hours, just as Foster told us to do. Foster did not die. He has begun to truly live. Foster has graduated and moved on to the fullness and is now complete and lacking nothing. We remain here 
charged to continue this work well-equipped with Foster's wisdom and infectious optimism to continue the noble work he inspired in all of us. Sadness is temporary, but joy is eternal. Our work is noble and eternal, and Foster taught us all of this truth. Now we honor our friend by dedicating ourselves to carry his love of liberty and truth to new generations. Foster, thank you, my friend, and my mighty mentor. Rest well knowing you have entrusted this work to your fervent servants. It was one of the greatest gifts of my life to know you. Thank you. Uh, that last part where he's getting choked up. Um, I, I know what parts I wrote. Mm -hmm. But I was trying to think, how would you say goodbye to someone like that? And to see him get choked up, he couldn't say goodbye. Yeah. And I don't think <clears throat> folks understand that there's a generation watching them. America's forgotten its legacy, that we're supposed to plant trees of whose shade we'll never know for generations to come. Mm -hmm. And you see a 27-year-old looking at a man who has now stepped into eternity, who believed in him and gave him a vision for the country. And so inspired him. I mean, what Charlie's doing as a result of that meeting in the stairwell at the Republican National Convention when he was a penny looking for change. And Foster was bigger than life. He had a cowboy hat and leather jacket and he just, yeah, he was a tyrant at a table in, in one sense. But as Charlie pointed out, he always wanted it to be about the person across from him. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't a day that, that went by where, where, where Foster didn't share the Lord with somebody. He was always sharing. And, um, and that, was, that was profound. And I realized the significance and the effect that Foster had on his life. And so I leave that memorial service, the funeral, and I go home, and there's a short amount of time, and then we have the event that evening. And... Of course, I do what they asked me to do, and then I got to drive home. As I'm driving home and I'm thinking about what I'm supposed to share on Sunday morning, I can't get Foster's life out of my mind and the, and the impact he's had on Charlie's life. And I've seen Charlie choked up on two occasions, and I've traveled with him extensively. I've seen heartache. I've seen excitement. He's a steady Eddie. Mm -hmm. I've seen him choked up on two occasions. Once was his wedding, private affair, and this memorial service. Because, you know, he's, he's being deployed to contend for the Republic. And the world's, you know, all these forces are attacking anyone who dares stand. And everyone wants the warmth of freedom, but they don't want to put a log on that fire. Mm -hmm. They don't want to lift a finger to put a log on that fire. There are wealthy people out there that think that their wealth is going to be preserved. And you have a young man who's contending for freedom, but with, with he who has been given much to him, much is required, the scripture says. Foster got that. He, he wasn't a billionaire. I, I think if, if, we, if we Google him, he's worth about 800 million. Yeah. Okay, he gave away $500 million. Yeah. And that night at his birthday, he said, we're going to fund a handful of charities. Write down your favorite charity, and we'll draw it at the end of the night. $70,000. Yeah. 
There was hundreds of people there. He that night he gave away seven point seven million dollars, yeah. and funded every charity. And and he wanted to teach people how to give. It's not your money; you're a steward of it. And like he said, if it was my money, you wouldn't get one red cent. Yeah. Because the human nature is selfishness and self-preservation and power. And people think money is the power. And and Foster knew the power comes in in the servant who is fearless. And he saw that in Charlie and invested in him. And the the other thing that hit me about Foster, and folks don't know this, and I I may be out over my skis on this, but I'll I'll share it. I, I was, I, I came back today from, from, or I came back last night from Phoenix, and I had uh, a late dinner with, with Charlie after the Freedom Square at Luke Barnett's church, mm-hmm. uh, Dream City Church. They're doing an amazing job there. And, and Charlie said, Rob, I finished that night, because we're at dinner. He said, I finished tonight, um, and, you know, people want to come and talk, but there's security and the like. And he said, um, this, this one lady made it through um, with wanting, it was urgent that she speak with me. And she gets all the way up and finally finds Erica and says, Erica, I'm a classmate of Charlie's. I, I really have to talk to him. I have been searching to tell him. I have to talk to him. She gets there. As she's approaching Charlie, Charlie goes, and I, and I won't say the lady's name, but he recognizes her and calls her by name. They were classmates in high school. Jeez. And they did chemistry together. They were lab partners. And they were friends throughout high school. And here they are. And he, went to, he went to high school in Chicago. Right. Here they are in, in Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona. Paradise Valley, actually. And she comes up and she, she says, Charlie, I, I had to talk to you because I knew that Foster had passed and I knew he was your mentor. And she says, I came tonight and Foster actually, or excuse me, Charlie actually talked about Foster that evening. Mm-hmm. And she can't compose herself. And she says, and that you brought up Foster. She said, I have to tell you something. I was his nurse the last weeks of his life. Really? And she said, I told Foster I knew you from high school. And do you know Charlie for two weeks? That's the only thing he ever talked about was you. Jeez and how proud he is of you. Because Charlie was overwhelmed. He's lost all of his mentors this year. Yeah. The ones that believed in him, they've all gone. Yeah. And I told Charlie, they gave you everything they had, and now you got to prepare for the generation behind you and give to them. Yeah. And this was the one that got me. She, she said to Charlie, Charlie, what you said about Foster tonight, do you know what he did? Every nurse on that floor he paid off their education debt. Oh my gosh. So I share all that because on Sunday, when I addressed the congregation on no sleep, burdened by Foster's life, more importantly inspired, not burdened, we're in a nation that has abandoned the law. Mm-hmm. The church has abandoned the law. And I'm not talking legalism. Please understand that. Right. We've abandoned the ecclesia, the public square, that from the moral law, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, comes civil law. We don't look at the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible anymore. And I, I was reading through Deuteronomy, and, and Foster's life was screaming at me in Deuteronomy. 
God says, honor this and I'll honor you. Do this and I'll prosper you. Follow these moral commandments. And you go through the Ten Commandments, you look at Foster's life, and, and you see a man whose life was all about that. And then Christians today say, well, that's the Old Testament. We're under the new covenant of grace. Amen, we are. But Christ didn't come to abandon the law, but to fulfill it. Mm -hmm. And then I want to share this with you because Jesus was approached by a Pharisee, an attorney, a lawyer. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the lawyer comes up to the Lord who, now this, Jesus is God. God the Father gave the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments to Moses, and, it, and, and he's to take it into a community that had been enslaved. Three to five million people have been enslaved by Pharaoh. God has sent him free and done all this. And, and now they're set free from an earthly tyrant, but they've now been enslaved by an individual tyrant themselves. The law is the wise restraints that make men free. You apply restraints towards evil in order for your society to flourish. These principles aren't systemically racist. Right. They apply to any human being on the earth that would, would honor them. Mm -hmm. God will honor you. It, it, the, the immutable trait of the color of your skin, this, this insanity of racism being put upon us by, by critical race theory and Black Lives Matter, it, it's bringing us backwards 100 years. They're, they're saying, you're white, get to the back of the bus. It's just reverse racism. And, it, and, and, and my, my brothers and sisters who have a greater melanin content than I do recognize the evil in this. And they're standing in opposition to it. That's why we're taking time to... But it's infiltrated every segment of our society, and it's going to bring down the republic. And our children are being educated in this in the schools in California. And until someone stands up and realizes right now, I'm not waiting for someone else to do it. It's, if, if I don't stand, I'm, not, I'm refusing to stand for future generations. I'm selfish to the extent that I don't want to face trial for the sake of generations to come. I don't want to suffer. Well, then, all that's necessary for evil to prosper is for good men and women to do nothing. Morality is not doing what's wrong. They're moral people. But character is doing what's right. Right. I, I said this on Sunday to the congregation. Your daughter comes home from school and says, everyone in the school called Susie fat, but I didn't. And you say, that's the moral thing to do. But where's your character, child? And the child says, what do you mean? And the parents say to the child, why didn't you tell the other children to stop it? Well, I would have been the only one. They would have laughed at me. So what? Yeah. It begins in Deuteronomy with fear God. Because when you fear the Lord... You're not afraid of anything else. And the fear isn't to be scared of him. It's a reverential fear. When you're in the presence of the one that keeps your heart beating and your lungs moving, the one that, that takes the attention of the room when they walk in, that kind of reverential fear. And, and you know that when they're speaking, you better, be, you, you better be silent and listening because they're the smartest one in the room. You know, everyone, nobody, every... People don't so much want to know about you. They want you to know about them. Everyone wants to do the talking like I'm doing right now. But hey. <laughs> I'm listening. <laughs> Thank you. You're the wisest man in the room right now. And so this idea of good people doing nothing, they're moral, but they're doing nothing while the republic implodes. And freedom, people are being enslaved. 
and this law is being removed and it being exchanged for a lie. And that wasn't Foster. Foster sees in a young man willing to stand up and say, I'm contending to set the captives free. The church takes on a position of moral piety. I've, I've read letters that Charlie's forwarded me by pastors who ridicule and attack his tone on his program towards those who are seeking to destroy the republic. Right. And my question to those pastors is, are you contending? Are you fighting? It's easy for you. Any donkey can knock down a barn door. Only a carpenter can build one. What are you doing? Your moral pietism that you're finding the flaw, which doesn't take long for any human being, while you're doing nothing. It, it, it just, it, it grates me. And the church is silent, but not all. Many are standing. That, that night, driving back, God shows me this law, the Decalogue. Shows me in Deuteronomy a people flourishing by applying this moral law. Now, the law is interesting because the law doesn't save. And we find this, and you'll see it momentarily as I'll read to you after I share with you a story about the Pharisee. The law doesn't save. The law preserves. Christ saves. There's only one, one name under heaven by which we must be saved. That's Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. The law doesn't save, but it does preserve. And it does allow us to live together in such a way as a guardian, a, a, a school teacher, to point us to Christ until that faith comes. And Foster contended for a society that would protect people by that moral law. In that public square, that ecclesia, Matthew 16, 18, upon this, this ecclesia, upon this rock I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of hell, gates enslave, and the gates of hell will not prevail. We'll set the captives free. You'll contend for, your, for this world, for, for those laws that will set people free, the restraints that set them free, until that faith comes. And I was pondering that. Galatians 3, the law is a guardian, a school teacher mm -hmm. to keep us safe until faith comes. And you're like, faith comes. Then what happens after faith comes? Then the law is no longer a have to, it's a get to. Hmm. For the world, it's constraints. Oh, why do I have to go to bed? Because you have school tomorrow. Why do I have to do my homework? Because you'll be stupid and you won't get a job if you don't. Well, that's a have to. But then when you have faith in the Lord and you realize, wait a minute, I get to do this and you've given me a new spirit to want to be a blessing to mankind and not be selfish. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, it's Christ who lives in me. That's Foster, his whole life. This Horatio Alger story, he wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth. And, and when you heard his story, it's fascinating. And then he lives his life for others. Hmm. It doesn't matter if, if you're the 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 busboy, the taxi cab driver, or a billionaire across the table. I want to know your story. And no one talk while they're talking. And that's the why and what Foster did. Yeah. And here's the part that hit me. Matthew 22. Jesus takes the Decalogue, he takes the Pentateuch, he takes all the moral law and the civil law, and he encapsulates it for the believer, the person who professes Christ as their Savior. He encapsulates it in the answer he gives to a lawyer. What's a lawyer? A lawyer deals with the law. Who 
says what's right and wrong? Well, if you remove God from the equation, those in power will decide what is truth. Critical race theory. Right. But if there is a moral law and a civil law and attorneys understand God and their responsibility and they understand what the law is for to keep us safe until faith comes, that we would have freedom of religion, freedom of speech, we can pursue truth. And this attorney looks to Jesus and he tries to trip him up because he's an attorney and he thinks he has that all. And God used this passage to awaken me to the gift that was Foster Freeze's life. And in the magnitude of blessing, he, he placed upon Charlie with that mantle. Take a look at the passage. Matthew 22 begins with verse 34. When the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, then one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, and this is what they call the Shema. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And that comes out of Deuteronomy 6. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law of the prophets. And the idea is love God, love man. If you love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and in mind, and you love your neighbors yourself, and we love ourselves, we are madly in love with ourselves. The interesting thing is rich people think they love, rich Christian people think that they love their neighbor. Poor Christians think they love their neighbor. Middle class Christians think they love their neighbor. But the question is, why do you do what you do? Are you doing what you're doing out of fear of man? Or are you doing what you're doing out of fear of God? Because if you're doing it out of fear of God, it's going to put you at odds with man mm -hmm. right now in this season. Mm -hmm. And you think you're being peaceable because you're avoiding conflict. Peace isn't the absence of conflict. Are you contending for their freedom no matter what the cost? Are you standing up like that kid in the classroom saying, stop it? Or are you looking for the path of least resistance, saying you're a peacemaker, and then using scripture to justify your moral pietism and attack guys like Charlie and Foster, to justify your selfishness and your unwillingness to use what was entrusted to you as stewards. That's not your money. As stewards for generations to come because the republic is in grave danger. Yeah. And I thought, these, on these two commandments hang all the law of the prophets. When Christ becomes your life and he takes up residence in your life, the law is no longer a have to, it's a get to. Mm -hmm. I get to, to, to use, I get to be a steward. I get to give this away. I get to serve my neighbor. I get to serve my enemy. I get to set captives free. The ones who are screaming at me, I get to give them liberty. I get to contend with the ones who revile me. I revile not. They're not the enemy. They're the opportunity. I don't, I don't, I'm not served. I get to serve. Mm -hmm. I, I don't have to be heard. I get to he hear. That's Foster. Yeah. He wanted every person in his presence to know how special they were to the point where everyone at the table be quiet. 
this person's talking. Yeah. And when I, when, when I saw that, I was blown away. Because take a look at Galatians 3. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor. And actually, the word in, in the Greek means guardian. To bring us to Christ. Now, we might be justified by faith, but after faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. The point is this. The law can be the wiser strength that sets you free. The law can preserve. It can't save. Only Christ can save. And when faith comes, the law takes on a whole new meaning. It's under, on these two commandments, hang all the law of the prophets. Mm -hmm. Makes it real simple, because it's, it's no longer a have to, it's a get to. But we contend in the public square for all mankind, for that moral law and that civil law that's found in the Pentateuch, to contend in the ecclesia, because that's the one that will cause a nation to prosper. Just read Deuteronomy. It's fascinating. And that's what, that's what he was fighting for. That's the why and what Foster did and why he saw in that in, in Charlie. And why the church doesn't, but now is awakening to it. And Charlie, we were the first church he ever spoke at. Now he's being asked to speak in hundreds of churches across the country. And we're starting Turning Point Faith. And it's exploding. And the number of pastors contending for the freedom of their community. Like the Brave Coalition. And, and you, you talked about Matthew's intro to me. It was the dearest introduction I've ever received. And I've, I've spoken everywhere, and I've, people have given you introductions because that was a man whose life was profoundly affected because we contended to protect his liberty. Mm -hmm. and, and then I'll just I'll finish with this. There's a danger. The law can be the wise restraints that make men free, but you can also weaponize the law without the fundamentals of recognizing the source of the law, mm -hmm. God. If you remove God from society, if you remove God from society, then mankind weaponizes the law to enslave. Because mm -hmm. there's no purpose to point them to Christ. And if the church doesn't contend for that, and we don't raise up men and women to contend for that in the ecclesia, in the public square, and we remain in the four walls of what we call church, which wasn't Matthew 16, 18, people are enslaved because the law's been weaponized. Mm -hmm. The law doesn't save, but it does preserve until faith comes and when Christ touches you because you've been pointed to him by the laws of nature and nature's God. You see, that's why you need to be at the school board meetings. That's why mm -hmm. you need to run for local office. Yeah, they're boring. Yeah, city council meetings, you sit through a six-hour meeting on the circumference of oak trees, but it's critical. You need to be on your homeowners association board. You need to show up at those meetings. You need to read the curriculum. You need to educate your children. When you read Deuteronomy, it says impart these truths. Only 14% of Americans know the Ten Commandments by heart. But they can name the Three Stooges, probably every member of the Brady Bunch, some stupid song, you know, two all beef patty special yeah. sauce. Let's <laughs> but God says, if you apply this to you and your family and your community, they will flourish. They'll bless. We used to have them on the edifices of our, our public buildings. The work of the critical race theorists and the, and the atheists, those who want to remove God, there's two governments the government of man and the government of God. 
and we are in a critical battle right now. And if the church doesn't awaken to its responsibility in the ecclesia, and that moral law being applied in their community to point them so that faith can come, we'll be, we'll be managing the decline of Western civilization, and we'll just wait for the churches to empty like they have in England. And this can be the church's greatest hour. Yeah, yeah. And, and I would say to the folks out there, be like Foster. Be like Foster. Because the Charlie Kirks of the world are looking for folks to believe in them and mentor them. And not just to believe in them and mentor them, but folks who have set the example that they can follow. I told Charlie, you need to write a series of books about Foster's life because of the impact. And I, I don't want to steal the title. It was really cool. Yeah. I, I got awakened by it. But um, I, I wanted folks to hear that. Yeah. What are your thoughts? You know, it's interesting. There's things that we just, being, a, being able to be involved in Fireside, being involved in the church, being involved in uh, Charlie Kirk's life in a small room, I, there's things that you take for granted. You know, Foster was 71, 72 years old when he looked into an 18-year-old's eyes and said, I believe in you. I can't even imagine. I can barely look into it. You, really? You have a vision? You, you look at our church growing 400%. You look at all these, you know, when you go to a, a drive around or I travel with work and stuff like that, I realize there's people out there that aren't finding a lot of the things that I find at this church, find in live stream, find through Charlie. Charlie had 400 people at that event on Saturday, and they were a family, old to young. They all believed in what you're saying here, what we said in Fireside, what Charlie believes in. And we need to always kind of realize, don't take it for granted, that we have a unique thing that could be spread like wildfire, and hopefully through TP Faith that will spread like wildfire because it really needs to this message of truth because the thing that i've learned with you is that it feels right in my soul you don't go off of feelings but the fear has gone away and through wisdom i feel con i feel strong in what has been taught to me over the last year and a half and the strength mm -hmm. of the wisdom yeah i I think the biggest lesson since we started this um, hundreds of episodes ago yeah. for me there were seasons in this whole process with the county and the state and mm -hmm. all this stuff everyone gets afraid mm -hmm. I was afraid but when you come to a place where you realize that you've been crucified with Christ your life is no longer dear to you. And I'm not holding on to anything. I've given it all away. Take everything I have. It will not stop me. Right. It will not stop me. Because there's only one area where I allow fear, and that's the fear of the Lord and it's reverential. Yeah. And everything else, you don't scare me anymore. Yeah. Take all my stuff. I know what awaits me. And I know what is, what is important to contend for on this earth. Oh, we'll leave with a story. This is the best one. So my son uh, is, is dating a gal, mm -hmm. uh, Elizabeth Kravchek. Mm -hmm. She's the granddaughter of Joseph Bondarenko. Mm -hmm. 
Joseph spent 23 hours a day in solitary confinement in the Soviet Union because he was a minister who would not relent from preaching the gospel. He's preaching our church. Mm -hmm. The KGB said, you'll die and all your family will be dead. You'll never see the light of day. They suffered unbelievably. And, and the story is, there's th thousands of stories. But here we are, we'd had a long day of moving, and Elizabeth's parents are in town, Lydia and Peter Kravchek. And so we, we have dinner together. Michelle and I, Michael, Lizzie, Peter, Lydia, and then our friends Tom and Kim Bengard. We're at the table having dinner, and, and it's a round table. Mm -hmm. And all of us are moved by Foster. And we speak one at a time, no sidebars. And none of us want to talk. We want to hear from Lydia and Peter. Lydia is Joseph Bondarenko's oldest child and oldest daughter. And obviously the mother of, his, of Joseph's granddaughter, which is Lizzie. Lizzie. Peter is the son-in-law of Joseph Bondarenko. But Peter's father, who just recently passed, Peter was part of the underground church in the Ukraine. Both of them were young in Soviet-occupied Ukraine. And they told this story that, that they would send preachers into these underground churches that were KGB preachers, that were better preachers than anyone they'd ever heard. And they'd be so moved by the way that they would preach the Word of God, and then they'd go and report them, and then they would all be imprisoned. Pre pre preachers! Mm -hmm. You couldn't even trust a preacher in the underground church in the Soviet Union. And then when the kids would go to school, they would give, it'd be like calling someone a racist and having the entire student body, you'd stand in front of them and a nine-year-old would be told, this is a racist, everyone in the church, school have nothing to do with them. That's kind of equating it to today. But for Lydia and Peter, at nine years of age, they would stand up in a school in their community that was you know, kindergarten all the way to high school. They would all gather in a mass auditorium. Every day, you know, when they would say praise to, you know, Stalin and yeah. et cetera, they would bring Lydia, and she went to a separate school than Peter. They'd bring Lydia up in front, and, and all the teachers would say, she is an agent of the United States. Her father is a traitor. Have nothing to do with her. And she had to go to school. Mandatory. That's a life of a Christian in the Soviet Union. And, and they, they, they'd have, when, whenever the KGB would come, they'd hide two things, the address book and the scriptures. Because they found the address book, they'd take out all the, the cells. They'd send in preachers and take out the cells. Peter had to do that himself before his class. They would, you know Joseph Bondarenko? No, I, yeah. You, and and they, would, they would ridicule him. He was in the Soviet military, forced, you know, uh, Everyone has to go into the military for two-year service. They would wake him up at 2 o'clock in the morning, bring him in front of the commanding officer and say, um, how do you know Joseph Bondarenko? And they would, you know, just endlessly. And then they finally put him in the brig. You, you, this is where you're going to spend your military duty. You're a Christian. We don't want anything to do with you. They were willing to stand for the gospel. And here we have a chance to save a republic that gave them refuge to call home. If America's done, there's nowhere else to go. 
Foster understood it's all on the line. Yeah, yeah. You will have no dime if you don't protect the greatest nation on the face of the earth that was conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal and they are trying to destroy it with critical race theory, Black Lives Matter, everything else, and the church must rise. Yep. So. Yep. I didn't know where we were going today on this one, but I just... We had a good time. Yeah, we had a good time. Yeah. So I hope you enjoyed it, and uh, I'm going to... We're going to go back old school. Yeah. You're, and you, you, but you want me to read it? You read it. All right, all right. Well, we're going to bless you uh, with, with what we've been doing for hundreds of episodes out of uh, Numbers... And this is for all of you tonight, and I, I wanted to encourage you, be challenged by Foster's life, and uh, let this blessing be upon you and your family as you observe his commandments and apply them to the hearts of your children and your own life and in that of your community. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. That was a great time. That was fun. Going through the past and seeing where we've been. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. God's good. Yeah. Folks, thanks for joining us. Uh, you've been with us on this journey. Some of you have recently joined us. Uh, others, you've been watching every one of them. And just to simply tell you that this has been a growing experience for all of us. Uh, and and, and, and this, this vehicle that God provided for us to talk through a camera and then be connected with thousands of people across the country has been nothing short of miraculous. And, and it's been encouraging for all of us. And I know too, so many of you write us and tell us, and you also pray for us. There's no reason, again, there's no reason why we should have so much peace in the midst of so much conflict. And there, there's one reason, mm -hmm. and that's your prayers. Yeah. So grateful. And you, you've supported us. We've never asked for it, but you have, which has allowed us to do wow. amazing things. Yeah. yeah. I, I, we, we would never been able to hire Rick had it not been for the folks of what they yeah. did. And, and being gone and having him cover things and allowing me to work with Charlie. Folks, thank you. Thank you. Um, you're a great blessing to all of us. And so that's that. And I'll see you when I see you. God bless you. Good night, everyone. Hey, guys. Thanks for watching. For more information, head over to VintageMcCoy.com or follow us on Instagram at The Vintage McCoy. We'll see you there.